gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Hopefully you guys won't notice, but my apologies to Adam and Victoria and everybody else in our vast audio-visual department. Um, I'm recording this late, uh, by which I mean about 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday. Last night on CNN, I was on duty to do commentary about the two town halls. That was from 11 to 1 in the morning. And then I had to come home to two very cross dogs who did not like being left alone at night, did not like the breakdown of protocol. My wife and daughter are on the West Coast uh, starting school, which is a whole other complicated thing. And so they were home alone and they chastised me greatly. And I took them out hoping they would let me sleep late, but they really didn't. And so I am, look, I'm grateful to CNN. I can't say I love doing TV these days. I don't I don't love the nature of the arguments and the discussions. I find them kind of exhausting. I don't I don't mean this as a slight against CNN. I felt it that way at Fox from the other angle and I certainly would feel worse I think at MSNBC. But maybe I've just kind of grown addicted to the podcast format where you can actually have conversations and let people complete a whole thought and just the nature of cable news, oh, broadcast news too, and and even radio news just doesn't lend itself as much to that sort of thing. And I really hate doing late night stuff because I'm going to wake up early no matter what. And so now I just feel like I took a red eye. So if I start speaking in tongues or if I get go down some incredible cul-de-sac on Metternich, um, I apologize in advance. It's, I'm just overtired and I got to write a G file and then get back to CNN because we're recording the Chris Wallace show. And I just got off an hour long business call. So I'm just laying down my, you know, the, the facts as, as, as I'm just including you in my process. So, um, the only upside is, is that having, haven't watched two hours of town halls, I have fresh content to, to talk about. I thought they both had real, both Nikki Haley and um, Ron DeSantis had really good nights. I think Ron DeSantis was about as good as I'd ever seen him. I still think he's a stiff. That doesn't bother me that much. Right? I mean, this is one of the problems with punditry is you start handicapping politicians for how you think other people will view them rather than how you would view them. So like probably a lot of pe people remember the whole thing that drove the left nuts, right, about how you should pick a president based on who you'd like to have a beer with. And most people would rather have a beer with George W. Bush than John Kerry or Al Gore. And that bothered the left a great deal, or at least bothered the aspects of the left that hated George Bush and liked those guys. I've always been sympathetic to the complaints about that kind of thing. It's really not how you should pick a president. But it's how a lot of people pick presidents, right? I mean, there's a reason why the taller candidate has won for in like in an enormous number of races, uh, particularly in the television age. Um, there are all sorts of things that you don't think should be important criteria that are important criteria. And for the people who complained about George W. Bush being the kind of guy you want to have a beer with, you know, Bill Clinton won in no small part because of his bite, of his, bite his lip, feel your pain, um, emotive crap, which I didn't like and the right didn't like. The point is, is that when you 
talk about this stuff for a living and write about this stuff for a living, sometimes it's difficult to have what you think are the preferences of the public or the uh, Republican electorate or Democratic electorate. It's sometimes hard to separate those from your own preferences versus what you think are the actual merits. So I actually don't care that Ron DeSantis has a, a, a pretty low EQ. Um, I just don't think he's, he comes across as the kind of person who really listens to people, who empathizes in a, in a, in a real way with, with audiences. I, I don't think he emotes well. Uh, they asked, you know, he got asked about, um, his sister who died and he wasn't remotely as bad as Michael Dukakis asking what he would do if his wife was raped and murdered. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. That was just, you know, that was awesome. And that was in 88 when Bernard Shaw asked him about what's his, Dukakis's opposition to the death penalty. He was like, well, what would you do if you were, if your wife were brutally raped and murdered? And Dukakis doesn't miss a beat and just says, it wouldn't change my position at all. And here's why. And then he gets into like some legalistic argument. I'm not saying, anyway, DeSantis wasn't nearly as, as bad as all that. And I, I kind of suspect that if you read the transcript of what he said, he, it wouldn't be as bad as it seemed to me watching it on a very large TV up close, paying close attention. But he just, it, it felt really pro forma and kind of cold. Again, I gotta say, I don't care personally very much. I would much rather have more presidents who are sort of dispassionate um, and not trying to be people's mommies or daddies or big brothers or therapists. But I think it's just fair to say that voters they may not consciously or admittedly say that kind of stuff matters to them, but I think it matters to them. And the aggregate at scale, these kinds of soft, intangible lizard brain things matter a lot. And so I think DeSantis, it's a real handicap for him. And DeSantis defenders, many of whom, particularly on social media, can be amazing jerks. And I, I don't know why it's almost like a strategy. And I don't quite get it. You know, you say this kind of thing and they either say you're imagining things or you're a cuck or you're a, you've got some sort of secret agenda to support some other candidate or you are, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, I mean, I'd be perfectly happy if DeSantis was the nominee and I would vote for DeSantis quite easily over Joe Biden um, with some reservations, to be sure, because I don't agree with everything he has to say or, and, and there are some substantive things where he's not my favorite candidate. I would prefer Nikki Haley. I think Nikki Haley's better on foreign policy stuff. But just as a matter of political handicapping, I think it's a real liability for him. I think if he were a better candidate, he wouldn't be in the position that he's in. If he was better at working a room and talking to people, he wouldn't be in the position that he's in. And the people who deny that because they think it shouldn't matter, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So anyway, I think he did well. I thought some of his answers, we can, I'll, I can circle back to those in a second. I had some real problems with, primarily on Ukraine. I thought it was sort of night and day with Nikki Haley. Um, but, you know, again, full disclosure, which I forgot to do last night. I'm sorry, just gets a little time on air. And, and, you know, 
it just didn't occur to me. I do it all the time, but my wife worked for Nikki um, at the UN. Um, I am not personally close with Nikki Haley. My wife has nothing to do with the campaign and hasn't, you know, worked with Nikki Haley in a couple of years. So, you know, there's no conflict of interest here, but people think it matters a lot. So I say it. I think on the EQ part, on the sort of feeling, uh, coming across as warm and understanding and compassionate and, and connecting with people, I thought it was sort of night and day how much better Haley was. Again, I don't know how much it matters, um, but I think it matters. I thought Haley as is often the case, did her homework. Both of them did their homework. And having written about how the gravest, I think it's basically unpatriotic sin of Republican candidates for years is the refusal to just do their homework, just like know their stuff. And I don't mean know just their talking points about, I mean, just like no public policy, no foreign policy. Like you're trying to be the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, just trying to lead your party. Just do your freaking homework. And it doesn't mean you can't do other political homework too and and all that but just like know what you're talking about and that's you know that i was writing those columns before donald trump came along donald trump just sort of puts a spotlight on it because i don't think he does any homework i don't think he cares a whit about the details of public policy i think he's basically told people i mean i i I don't think i know he has told people in the past he doesn't care about that stuff so anyway I think they both did their homework. Um, DeSantis was really impressive in his knowing exactly what he wanted to say to virtually any question, but also figuring out very quickly and not in a stumbling way how to basically answer the question he wanted to answer rather than necessarily the direct question that he was asked without seeming like he was dodging, which shows more political skill from him than I'm used to. I thought Nikki was just much better, more likable, more have a beer or maybe a glass of white wine with. At the same time, I think it's funny ever since the slavery thing, which we'll talk about briefly for a second, because I think people are talking way too much about it. Ever since that, in part because of the aggressiveness of the sort of DeSantis world and, and MAGA world in on their social media pressing things, the, I think, sort of shabby effort to sort of pluck stuff out of context from her and make her sound dumb or make her sound uh, tone deaf has just exploded. And so if you actually listened to her answer and didn't come in with a whole bunch of priors about the slavery stuff, which I think a lot of my colleagues at CNN did, you know, in the course of answering the question about basically cleaning up her, her, her bad answer, you know, 10 days ago about what caused the Civil War, she was talking about growing up in South Carolina and how South Carolina is sort of sort of so steeped in Civil War history and the history of slavery and all of that, that it was just all around. And she claims that she just sort of spaced it. I'm not sure I completely buy that, but whatever. But in the course of talking about her childhood, she had said, you know, we would talk about it with my black friends. This little soundbite's taken out of context and or I don't even have the context. It's just it's take well, it is taken out of context, I think, to make it sound like she was doing the cliched, you know, some of my best friends are black kind of thing, which was just not how I think she meant it. And it's not how it read to the people in the room. People are bringing a lot of stuff to the table with her. And there were a couple other places like that where I thought she, it's Scott, Scott Jennings. God, I apologize. He was made in the point last night that Haley should embrace the less is more and stop explaining why she screwed up or how she screwed up and just say, I screwed up and move on. And I think that's absolutely correct because when you have people who are looking 
to find the evidence they are going to claim to have found no matter what, just giving more words gives them ammo to do it. And um, these long-winded explanations, you know, just give people more sound bites to say she doesn't get it, whatever. But I do think if you were in the room and you listened to her, or if you were paying, if you were not a pundit of the left or the right, or working for a different campaign, and you were just someone in the television audience watching that in good faith, the way she stuck the landing on the Confederate flag stuff and all that, I thought was pretty compelling. I've heard it before. It's a big part of her story, but she's very good at telling it. And so anyway, I think there are a lot of people who sort of the knives are out for her. I tried to make this point during a commercial break, so I won't out people's names because this is private conversations and all that. But, you know, there are a lot of people on air talking about from every angle, how terrible Nikki's answer is on slavery and rehashing it all. And I listened to all these people talking about this, almost every single one of whom was uh, left of center, right? And I said during a commercial break to the people on my panel, we, were, we had been listening to the New York panel, just like, look, um, I think you guys, you know, one of the reasons why Nikki's answer was so bad back 10 days ago was that this is the kind of topic that people in the sort of the mainstream media, liberal media, they just love to talk about, right? It, it, it checks all these boxes about race, about slavery, about the retrograde, you know, Republican Party and Southern conservatives and how basically the GOP is a neo-Confederate party. I mean, it, it allows for, I'm not saying there's no substance to any of that stuff. I just think it's a lot of it's exaggerated, but it allows people to just run at full gallop with their greatest hits about why they don't like the GOP and the and Republican politicians are dog whistling to bigots and all these kinds of things. And I just don't think that that's really what Haley was doing consciously at all. Um, and even subconsciously, I think it was at most a one factor among many. But you know, it's sort of like there are all sorts of topics that the right just finds endlessly fascinating and can't stop talking about it. You know, like the Bud Light screw up and liberals and leftists look at conservatives. Like, why are you still talking about this? Why? Is, and, and we can give you all sorts of reasons why we just think it's sort of fascinating and hilarious and telling and, and significant and blah, 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 sort of like the Claudine Gay stuff. Right. And liberals who don't want to hear about it and think that they have a better grasp of what's, you know, what the actual human motivations and stakes are and all that kind of stuff. They're just sort of like, man, you're just, you're reading way too much into that. And my sense is, is that the truth is always somewhere between those two positions. This is a case where I think one of the reasons why Nikki's answer was so bad is like, this is the kind of topic that lots of people in the mainstream media, lots of CNN people, lots of MSNBC people, want to talk about anyway, and they go looking for excuses to talk about it. And then you give this, you know, answer that just says, oh my gosh, this is like a newsworthy topic. It's a real news peg. Of course, we're going to keep talking about this long after, like normal people just don't give a rat's ass about it. And I just think that the, and so I said during the commercial break to these guys, I think you guys are just like way over reading the significance of all of this. I don't think anybody in that room is thinking about, you know, these troubling, ominous significances about racism and slavery and all that kind of stuff. I think they heard Nikki say, Ailey say, I screwed up. And with the exception of David Axelrod's criticism, which I kind of share a little bit, which is that it, it reminded people that Nikki's actually a politician. Um, I think 
beyond that, that the audience is going to remember her story about the Confederate flag in South Carolina and and say that was a pretty good answer. And this started a major, albeit brief, intense discussion with some of my co-panelists about how I'm just wrong and I'm imposing my things on on the facts and they have a better grasp of things. And um, anyway, it, that's sort of just in my head. I don't know if either of them are going to help themselves significantly in all of this. We had a conversation on the Dispatch podcast yesterday. I didn't love it, and I kind of said so. I just thought it was premature to do this post-mortem talk about how it is that we got to a position where Trump was going to win all the primaries and be the nominee. Look, I think he's probably going to win the not the primaries, or at least most of them, um, and be the nominee. I think that's the smart way to bet. Um, it certainly looks that way. But there's going to be a long time to have that conversation actually after he does it. Um, so just doing it 11 days before the Iowa caucuses just seemed a little premature to me. But I, And I also, as I said on the Dispatch podcast, I if I have to make, sometimes you have to make decisions because you have to make a decision. I've recently had this conversation in depth with my daughter about some of her life choices about college and stuff. It's like sometimes you have to make a decision with the information and the facts that you have in front of you and the information and the facts that you have just really aren't great or they all point to one thing, but that doesn't mean that one thing is going to happen because the future hasn't happened yet and things, surprises happen every single day. And so do I... I have to bet based on the information we have now, I think Trump's the nominee. I certainly think he wins Iowa and then wins New Hampshire um, or comes in a close second in New Hampshire, which would be a big deal, and then wins South Carolina and then wins Super Tuesday and then it's all over. That's, again, put a gun to my head. That's what I would predict. That's what I would bet on. But I would rather not bet. I am much less confident than a lot of people and I could be wrong about that. That's fine. I'm I'm totally open to it, right? I just, I think that there's this dynamism to events where people respond to things in contrary ways to the trend that's developing. I know this is in my head a little bit because in the Wednesday G-File, I returned to the, briefly to return to the thing about how slippery slope stuff almost I'm not saying there are no slippery slopes. I don't want to get into a fight with my friend Dan McLaughlin about this again. But um, slippery slope stuff is real. But what I object to in the slippery slope formulation is the, and I'm going to get fancy with you, the teleology and reification of it all. And what I mean by that is, you know, teleology says, is this implication that there's a, there's a purpose, there's a system, there's an end that events are unfolding towards like a countdown right manifest destiny you know the immunitizing the eschaton you know the 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 end times that uh the shanshu prophecy um you know that that we're just looking to that that there's this inexorable, divine, mystical, historical, deterministic, scientific, material system that is unfolding, plan, right, a process that is unfolding, and it's, there's destiny at work. Um, that's a very seductive way of thinking for human beings, and I'm often 
slippery slope stuff takes on that kind of aura. And it what I, and what bothers me about that is it is it denies the fact of human agency and human counter agency. Uh, I was just reading this really interesting piece in a British magazine, I think it's The Critic, about how one of the reasons why transgender stuff has just taken off so much in the UK, although I think the same argument applies here, um, has to do with this sort of timeless phenomenon, uh, timeless, but this very old phenomenon, this very old tradition of activists and bureaucrats having accomplished their primary goal, saying, okay, what next? Rather than we're done here. I wish more social justice activism was more like barn raising. Um, because once you build the barn, you're kind of done. and Everyone goes back to their houses, right? Mission accomplished. But the remarkable success of the gay rights movement to get gay marriage and, 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 and all of the sort of legal penumbras that go with gay marriage accomplished, a lot of these activist groups, you know, they were up and running, they had mailing lists, they had a sense of purpose, and they were like, okay, what's the next thing on the agenda? Anyway, and this piece was really interesting, it was about how no one was talking about the trans stuff until met with the reality that like they needed a new cause or they had to go home, so they embraced this new cause. And I think we see that kind of thing all over the place. The thing is, is that the argument for the trans stuff is not the same argument as for gay marriage. And um, it's similar like with feminism. A lot of the really morally compelling things um, about early stage feminism have been accomplished. And the professional feminist organizations, they have to narrow and narrow and narrow and get more granular and more fringy in their demands because the low-hanging fruit has been cleared. And you see this, you know, time and time again. I mean, it's and there are gun people who are still, like, insisting that we not ban bump stocks, which I just think is sort of, let's just say it's an illustration of my point. And, but anyway, back to the slippery slope thing is that successful movements, one of the reasons why they're successful is their ripest arguments and ambitions and goals are sufficiently ripe or sufficiently compelling that very broad coalitions end up supporting them, like things like civil rights. And then once those goals are accomplished, a lot of the normals are sort of like, okay, well, we did this thing, we voted for this thing, we passed this law, we're done here. And, but the professional activists are like, oh no, we're just getting started. And, and so, yeah, there's a slippery slope in the sense that those activists will keep asking for more stuff and keep trying to build on their past successes. But the stuff that they're acting, asking for in almost a Hegelian dialectical way arouses a much stronger counter reaction. And so like, with abortion, Pro-lifers are at their strongest when they're talking about partial birth abortion because lots of pro-choice people are just not signed up for that, right? They're not signed up for, you know, third-term healthy babies being aborted. The coalition's at its broadest on the pro-choice side on stuff in the first trimester or, you know, rape and incense or life of the mother because they're even nominally pro-life people who um, can abide or support that kind of stuff. And the more extreme, fringe, boutique, whatever labels you want to put on it, 
the supposed beneficiaries of the slippery slope are, the more the, co the, the majority coalition moves against it. And how did I get on this? How did I get on this? I don't remember how I got on this. But see, this is why I need like an intern sitting here who will just sort of whisper to me, you were just talking about tangerines or whatever it was. I cannot for the life of me remember. I will put a pin in that until it comes back to me. So anyway, I, I just have this, this problem with people who say if, if we allow X, if we allow A, there'll be no stopping us before we get to Z. And um, whenever I have this argument with slippery slope advocates, uh, hardcore slippery slope advocates, it seems to me that they always cherry pick the things that did happen, but not the actual slippery slope scenarios that were raised at the beginning. So like with the gay marriage stuff, a lot of serious people, or at least a lot of people in serious positions were saying, if we allow this, there'll be no stopping us from allowing people to marry their horses and or their dogs or whatever. And guess what? Not there's not a big movement for people to marry horses or dogs right now because there's not popular support for it. And so there's just this thing about human agency and I'm going to kill myself because I can't remember what, what the point I was trying to get to with this. So again, uh, let me just completely switch gears for a second so I can, maybe it'll come to me because I've found that as I get older, when I forget something or forget someone's name or the forget why I entered a room, it's it's like when you drop, I don't know, your, your phone or your car keys or something between the console and your seat and your car, and the act of reaching for it actually pushes it farther away. The only way to sort of retrieve it is to stop trying to remember the word, and then it'll just come to you. So why don't we talk about the Houthis for a second until this thing comes to me? Jeez, I'm, it's driving me crazy. So I'm kind of obsessed with how bad the Biden administration has been about this stuff. I think the Biden administration has been better than a lot of my friends on the right. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of persuaded by Dan Senor of the uh, Call Me Back podcast and occasionally on commentary where he says, and I think persuasively, that Biden is playing a political game, game with his own base um, to buy time for Israel to do what it needs to do. And he's been generally pretty good on Israel, even though. People like me are paying a little, you know, we're also paying attention to the stuff the administration is doing that placates Biden's base and we say, oh, he's wobbling. I think there's probably less wobbling than um, there seems. It's just that the Biden needs to communicate, you know, including to the jackwads in his own administration who are, you know, signing protest letters and candlelight vigils out, outside the office, that he's not completely on board with Netanyahu and those guys. But they're actually giving Israel the time and space to do what it needs to do, for the most part. That could change, right? I mean, the tea leaf reading could be wrong here, and they could really be going wobbly. You know, running for re-election could change the equation in all sorts of ways. But I, I generally am not that hard on Biden about the actual Israel versus Gaza stuff, but I am at a complete loss, and I think everyone else is as well, and Senor says this too, um, about what the hell the administration is thinking about Iran. And I think the basic answer is they're just kind of hoping the problem goes away. Um, and they're trying to just do as little as possible to sort of just ride it out. Sort of like if you don't open your parking tickets, you know, if you don't open the letters from the DMV, then you don't really owe the money. It's, it kind of feels like that kind of attitude. And so look, the Houthis 
are simply pawns of Iran. Now, I'm sure there are Houthis who don't see it that way, but if Iran told the Houthis to stop harassing international shipping through the Suez Canal, or whatever this straight thing is called, they'd stop. If it was just the Houthis being, and this is something that people don't really talk about as much, if the Houthis were actually free agents doing this on their own, I think the Biden administration would come down on them like a ton of bricks because there would be no fear of escalation, right? I mean, that's, I think, the thing that's driving or not driving um, the Biden administration to do something is there have this, you know, this obsessive thing about not escalating with Iran. And you got to remember, you know, Biden's the guy who right after 9-11 told his staff on the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, what we should do right away is just give Iran $150 million or something like that just to show that we're not mad at them. A crazy idea. It makes no sense. But, you know, there you have it. He's got, there are a bunch of people in the Democratic Party, in the sort of elite foreign policy world that I don't know what the sociology of it is or what the, you know, the, the begats are on this. But it's, it clearly goes back to this, I don't know, 1980s, 1990s thing about how Conservatives have to be wrong about Iran, so we'll just do the opposite of what those perfidious neocons are doing, or something like that. And we need a, we need a deal with we need a nuclear deal with Iran because we need a nuclear deal, and that's it, right? It's sort of tautological. But you know, I I think I've mentioned this a couple times in recent podcasts. You know, it's not the only reason, and you could argue it's not even the main reason, but it was an important reason that we actually have a constitution in this country is to pay for a Navy. And the reason we needed to pay for a Navy is we needed the Navy to do something. And what we needed the Navy to do was beat the stuffing out of the Barbary pirates in precisely this part of the world. And uh, I mean, not where the Suez Canal is, because among other things, the Suez Canal didn't exist at the time, but the neighborhood, right? You know, the was it the Battle Hymn of the Republic? The 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 Marine song, you know, from the shores of, what, uh, from the hills of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. The Tripoli part is like from the Barbary pirate stuff. The Articles of Confederation were inadequate to raise money to build a navy, and you had a bunch of people on various sides of you know the Articles of Confederation and various sides of military stuff generally. They're all like. This cannot continue. We got to take these mofos out. And it's, you know, I've done some reading on this. It's been a little while, but like the idea that, that, you know, we get this idea that isolationism is the original founding understanding of the founding fathers because of the Washington's no entangling alliances and the, the, or the, or the stuff in the farewell address, right? The, I think it's John Adams says, don't go looking for monsters to destroy. Um, Jefferson has his own version of, of this isolationist stuff. And actually, I think maybe the phrase entangling alliances originally comes from Jefferson. I can't remember because I am tired, as if you can't tell. Regardless, Jefferson was all about having a Navy. He was like, this is the reason why you need a Navy is to protect commerce, to protect your, your ships. And he actually had this funny I way of thinking about it, which was that he said, you know, navies are not a threat to domestic liberties the way armies are. 
um, because armies are stationed on your own land and they can, you know, take away your rights and all that kind of stuff. And I get the point, but, um, you know, if you have Marines, uh, Marines can do a lot of stuff on land. Um, but anyway, that was sort of the way Jefferson thought about it, is that navies are um, less of a threat to uh, democracy or republicanism or whatever than, than armies are, and you need a navy. Um, he also had some weird views that he didn't explore too far about like doing a kind of agrarian nation building in the areas where the, you know, the, the, the day of Algiers, the leaders of these various pirate states um, lived, which again, I always bring it up is like this idea that somehow the, the Jeffersonian Republic vision that a lot of isolationists want to invoke that didn't involve a strong national defense or or intervening in the affairs of other countries is just not right. I mean, I'm I'm of the school that um there the Americans were never isolationist. That isolationism is one of these words like censorship that we use to describe that we use um when we disagree on, uh, when we're trying to anathematize somebody else's foreign policy position, right? Um, lots of people believe in censorship. Um, they just, but when they disagree with what other people want to censor, they call that censorship. And if you think we should intervene somewhere and somebody else says we shouldn't, um, you call them an isolationist. And that doesn't mean like there haven't been isolationists, real isolationists. Like I think Ron Paul was a, was a real isolationist, but even Ron Paul is a good example. I just got into an email tit for tat with a friend of mine about this. Um, you know, Ron Paul had all sorts of exceptions. He was not a fortress America guy. He was for global free trade. Right. And, and um, you know, Pappy Cannon gets called an, an isolationist thought, but he wanted to send um, the seventh fleet to go save Croatia, uh, during the, the Balkans war. Um, people pick and choose, you know, the, the exceptions to their rules. And so anyway, I, you know, the, the founding fathers were in no way, shape or form against a national, strong national defense. And the supposed champions of robust constitutionalism and being, you know, and being apart from the world and all of that, um, they they need to explain the fact that the, the, the very constitution that they revere probably wouldn't have been written were it not for the fact that everyone agreed we really need to raise some money to um, to build a navy to open a can of whoop ass halfway around the world. And this is just simply what navies are for. You cannot have this ragtag bunch of, of, of pirates in effect, um, and vandals harassing one of the two, three, I mean, I'm open to correction. There's Suez, there's, there's the Panama Canal. Um, maybe there's one other, but like it's the uh, most important waterways, uh, you know, 
global trade choke points in the world with billions and billions and billions of dollars at stake. There's no justification for what the Houthis is doing. And sometimes if you want to prevent this sort of thing, you just have to um, slap it down hard. And this is, again, this is not my bagel snarfing, warmongering, neoconservatism talking. This is something that Thomas Jefferson would have believed. This is just like, again, why you have navies. And um, the, it, it feels like the, the causal arrows or whatever about the fear of escalation just go the wrong way. Even I'm a peace through strength guy. I don't want to get any more wars, but like people should be afraid of us escalating, not the other way around. And the stuff with Iran, which is calling the shots on this, is actually by all accounts, I shouldn't say all accounts, by some accounts, it's coordinating the Houthi stuff. That's just, it's intolerable. And um, why we would let this continue, you know, why, particularly Biden, when so much of his political, so many of his political headaches in terms of inflation and all that, have a lot to do with the supply chain screw-ups coming out of COVID. And also the supply, I, I would argue, the supply chain screw-ups that came out of the wild overspending in the Biden administration, but in the inflation that came from some of that too. But again, inflation and supply chain problems were a global problem. You want to screw with supply chains and keep inflation going higher for a while? Force like 40% of the trade between Asia and Europe and the United States um, to detour thousands of miles out of its way around the Horn of Africa. I think we claim to be, you know, uh, maintaining the order of the seas and all that kind of stuff. It kind of falls to us. We're at least the leader of that effort. But it would not bother me in the slightest if Britain said, you know, all right, so Biden's asleep at the switch. We got to do something here because this is just un intolerable. It's just not what a serious power does and um, is tolerate this kind of thing. So that's, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I think all, I think Iran is the author of a lot bigger problems than just this in the Red Sea right now, but they all go back to Tehran. Um, I personally think Obama behaved shamefully during the, the what was it, the green uprising? I can't remember what it was called in, in during his administration. Um, I was not in favor of sending troops into Iran or anything like that, but America should be giving as much moral and material support as it can to movements fighting for freedom and democracy, particularly when they have a chance of succeeding, like lending moral support to Democracy activists in in Russia or China, I'm all in favor of, but you know we're not going to be shipping them huge amounts of money and that kind of stuff if they have no chance of succeeding. It just doesn't make sense as a, as a foreign policy tactic. But um, rhetorical support, uh, moral support, absolutely. And I think that the Iran, there was more of a possibility of a real tipping point. Obama was a stability guy and he wanted a deal with Iran. And so having a deal with Iran was more important than actually freeing Iran. And Iran, you know, killed a lot of our troops in Iraq. Um, that's why we took out Soleimani. That's why Trump was right to take out Soleimani. Iran is the primary patron of Hezbollah and Hamas. Iran is behind this Houthi stuff. They are bad actors. Why we are so 
sort of deferential and scared of them being mad at us or going to war with us when they've been basically waging a low intensity war with us for a very long time is sort of beyond me. But there's just this weird fixation about Iran doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I still can't remember why I got into reification and, and teleology because um, uh, I was trying to make an actual point. I was really hoping it would sneak up on me while I talked about the Houthis. Back to the debate stuff for a second. So I'm at debate town hall stuff. I think that maybe that'll trigger my memory. I think Nikki's, Nikki Haley's answer on Ukraine was great and correct and right, since we're talking about foreign policy. I think, you know, getting to this point about the the nastiness of some of DeSantis's communications and social media people during the town hall or or right before it, when the Haley campaign tweeted something about how letting Russia win is helping China. What's his name? Um, I can't remember. I actually wrote it down last night. Um, Jeremy Redfern, um, who's the, a press secretary for DeSantis. Uh, he tweeted that, uh, you know, Nikki Haley is determined, is just so determined to send your kids to fight her donors' wars. And I just think that's a grotesque smear, and it's a weird thing given how DeSantis has been saying how he's not going to smear Trump, but his campaign's going to smear Nikki Haley. Just flatly not, and Nikki Haley has said over and over and over again that she doesn't want to send troops. And the DeSantis people and DeSantis himself constantly, and this is sort of my problem with the spats between both of them, um, whether it's about, you know, in the now the big talking point is that Nikki's all about her donors. Well, Nikki's right that one of the reasons why DeSantis is pissed is a lot of those donors left DeSantis because they didn't think he could win and went to Nikki because they thought there was still a chance. That's not a great argument to me. And But basically, both of them, they hurl these accusations at each other based upon hypothetical, imagined, made up positions that the other one has rather than actually their stated positions. And uh, it's just a bad faith way of arguing uh, going both ways. But to say that Nikki Haley wants Americans to go die for the benefit of the donors, that conjures all sorts of really sort of uh, gross historical quasi-Marxist kind of um, arguments. It's also, I'm not saying there's that specific claim was anti-Semitic, but it does have echoes of that, you know, um, you know, we're supporting Israel because the arms industry wants us to and all that kind of crap. Um, and just gross because it's not her actual position. And it's so demagogic to say that Nikki Haley wants to have your kids die in a foreign war. It'd be one thing if she was in favor of sending troops. I mean, I still wouldn't like the, the, the demagoguery of it. But there at least be a colorable argument behind it. But her express position is not to send troops. And so it's all this sort of made up stuff. I thought DeSantis's worst answer, both substantively, but also um, sort of delivery wise, was probably his answer on Ukraine, because it was just it was a bit of a word salad. He came out with saying, oh, I think the Europeans should send them weapons. We shouldn't. Um, you know, what what weapons should Europe send that it isn't sending? It was just, it was, uh, it was, it was bad kind of dog whistling on the issue. It may be the right thing to say politically, but I don't think it didn't make any internal sense really. 
it was just, uh, I mean, it was the kind of pandering that they accused Haley of doing um, and the kind of word salad that they correctly, in the case of the slavery thing, accused Haley of doing. Um, Haley had um, um, a lot of really good answers to other things. Again, I think she carried herself really well. I think her answer about schools was pretty terrible. And again, this is something that it may work politically uh, because, you know, a big chunk of her support comes from suburban moms. There had just been a school shooting yesterday and, you know, they used to call them security moms. Uh, and so she's signaling, you know, that she's for doing something to protect people's kids. And that's a good place for a politician to be. It's a good place for a female politician to be. But the actual substance of her proposal about target hardening every school in the country and making them all one point of entry and having them run like the security of airports. Um, you know, she literally said our schools need to be more like airports. We need to run our schools like airports. Um, you know, and as I said on TV last night, I was like, who comes back from the airport saying, man, I wish my kids' schools ran like this. It's just not, it's not a feasible thing. Plus she was like talking about how every school needs to have a dedicated health professional who's there to spot potential school shooters. That's a creation of a kind of bureaucratic incentive structure I got some problems with. And it just doesn't, I don't think it really makes sense as a, as a policy thing. Also, the amount of money that you would then continue to shovel at schools um, where the education bureaucracy would not necessarily spend it on this security stuff. I just think there's just all sorts of moral hazard involved there. I don't think it's a serious answer, but I don't know if it'll work politically. I just thought it was like, I was kind of like gobsmacked by it when I was listening to it. Anyway, I apologize. I really can't, for the life of me, remember the point I was trying to get to before. Please don't send me email because I'm sure, I mean, please feel free to send me email, but don't send me email telling me what the point was I was trying to get to because A, I'll remember, and B, I think it was obvious because I signaled it when I was talking and then I just forgot what I had signaled. Oh, just on, on reification, because um, I didn't actually explain what reification is. When you reify something, you're basically taking an abstract thing and you're making it concrete. You're making it a thing, right? And I think this is one of the great mistakes of intellectuals is to confuse an idea for a thing um, and to think that the ideas are wholly external from us and therefore and have a power and force all their own. And there's actually this thing called a reification fallacy, which I can't remember the exact definition of, but you can probably guess. And um, I will say, and I don't think this is the point I was trying to get to, I do think that we have a bit of a reification crisis in our culture in the sense that we are constantly trying to come up with explanation, systemic explanations for things. And that, that gets to that slippery slope point. Maybe this is where I was going. I don't know that the, that there are things external to ourselves that are unseen forces that are driving us. This is, you know, one of the reasons why the whole argument about systemic racism and critical race theory and all these kinds of things was created was they ran out of real world, tangible examples of old-fashioned, hardcore, ugly racism. I mean, I don't mean it ceased to exist entirely, but like Jim Crow was gone, right? All that low-hanging fruit stuff, um, poisonous fruit, 
you know, was, was gotten rid of, but there was an entire intellectual project that still wanted to be fighting racism. And so they came up with concepts like institutional racism. And the driving idea behind it was that um, disparities between racial groups still existed. And since race is an abstract social construct with no basis in reality, any disparities between groups had to be explained by institutional forces that um, were keeping one group down over another group. And I mean, Ibram Kendi has said this flat out explicitly. I remember listening to him on the Ezra Klein podcast because people said I had to listen to it and it made me mad that I listened to it. But it also, he was just explicit about it. It just basically says that there is only one explanation of the differences between groups and it has entirely to do with the external oppression, racism of outside groups um, or outside forces and nothing to do with the human agency, the human choices, the cultural choices um, of those groups. And I think it's a profoundly dangerous and stupid way to explain the world around us. I'm not saying there's never any institutional stuff there. I've made this argument many times is that there are some things, you know, there are some places where the institutional racism argument has some explanatory power. I defended Pete Buttigieg when he was talking about how there was some vestigial uh, institutional racism in in American infrastructure and where highways and railroads were built. And he's right about that. I think it's more complicated than the than the the just so story that he told, but he's right about that, right? And it's because infrastructure that towns need but don't want near their houses tend to get put in places lacking political clout, right? The people in the ritziest part of the neighborhood aren't going to get the sewage treatment plant near their houses or near their kids' schools. They're going to put it in the place where the residents have the least political power to resist it. And in lots and lots of places, those were poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, and especially poor black neighborhoods. And there's a certain amount of racism there. I don't think it was necessarily punitive racism, though I'm sure there was some of it. I mean, I'm sure in some instances there was lots of it. But my point is, is that it had the explanation has more to do with the lack of political power than it does necessarily with just sort of virulent racism, though the two, obviously, there are all sorts of connections. But this idea that, that, that groups and individuals are, that any consequences that they face in their life are solely attributable to institutional forces outside of their control, I think is a, is a horrendous thing to tell people. Um, starting with the fact that it's not true. I'll just take it for an individual for a second. Every parent knows that the choices you make matter. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to go your way if you make the right choices, because life's complicated. As was Judd Nelson says in Breakfast Club, screws fall. It's an, it's an imperfect world. But all things being equal, making good choices will lead to better outcomes than making bad choices. Not trying, you know, not getting involved in drugs is um, a good choice. 
not, you know, about finishing high school, the success sequence stuff. I and mean, I, I feel kind of, I kind of resent that I sometimes have to make these kinds of arguments, but like choices matter, lifestyle matter, habits of the heart matter, um, character matters. These things matter. And again, bad things happen to good people. And sometimes stuff goes south on people who make all the right decisions. That's obviously the case. But all you can do is sort of hedge your risks and do arbitrage. And if you make nothing but bad choices, it's really hard to avoid bad things happening to you. And sadly, I don't know, sadly, but, you know, ironically, it, it's a big, complicated world with lots of people, you know, uh, with, with, with lots of individual, you know, cases, sometimes really bad people, just everything kind of goes their way. Some people just have really good luck. You know, I mean, I mean, Hunter Biden is paying a pretty steep price these days, but for a guy who made a lot of bad choices for a very long time, he seemed to have a really good time for a while. Jeffrey Epstein, you know, which I'm not going to get into details on, but like until things went south on him, things seemed to be going really good for him by his standards, right? I mean, so like you can have a long, you know, arc of good times having made bad decisions, but it's all a numbers game. And eventually, you know, the house of, you know, the house wins. Karma works out for most people. And um, this is not to say that the disparities between blacks and whites or blacks and Asians or whites and Asians or Asians and Hispanics or whites and Hispanics or any of these cross-ethnic comparison things necessarily have to do with making immoral choices or irrational choices. Um, there's all sorts of path dependence and, you know, there are legacies of slavery, which are legitimate and all these kinds of things. But like, if you deny that individuals have human agency, if you deny that people are, are you know, captains of themselves and the, the primary masters of their fate, that's just a, it's a cruel and gross message to send to them. And it also, again, is not true. And so you have this, that's the reification thing, right? Is like we have this tendency to sort of say, you know, of 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 deny our own agency, of denying our own ability to influence the course of our lives, or the course of groups' lives, or cultures' lives, or communities' lives, by just saying there are these forces arrayed against us. And I think that's a real crisis in this culture. It's all over the place on the MAGA side. It's all over the place, place on the left. It's, in, it's, it's a far more institutionalized on the left. You know, we've been talking a lot about Claudine Gay. <laughs> um, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have, but I can understand why people say, oh, we're making too big a deal out of it and all this kind of thing. But, you know, the, the whole DEI um, intersectionality, that whole project justifies itself by taking these abstract reified ideas, claiming that they're the true reality, and then saying that the disparities between groups can only be explained by the external forces of oppression elsewhere. And that justifies doing all sorts of things that violate the spirit of merit. And I got to say, you know, so like a week ago, I wrote a G-File where I talked about this thing about 
the the left's the DE it's not just the DEI crowd. There's a whole slice of of both the class obsessed left and the race obsessed left that hates the idea of merit. People have written books against merit. People say uh, there are classes taught at Harvard against the concept of merit. They talk about how meritocracy is a myth and all these kinds of things. I am the first person to concede that the things that constitute merit in our society today are not necessarily meretricious. I've been talking about how complexity is a subsidy for a very, very long time and how we are setting up a system designed for certain groups, certain sets of elites um, to be able to navigate and jump through the hurdles and get the rewards while locking out a lot of other people. Totally agree with that. I, you know, I've been talking about it a long time about how a lot of this woke verbiage and woke, these woke shibboleths are, um, they're essentially veblen goods. There are ways to signal that you had the kind of money and wherewithal to um, waste a lot of resources teaching your kids to speak this sort of second language. Um, it's sort of like being able to speak French at, at the, in the Russian court. And that stuff gets counted as, you know, I mean, the people who don't like the meritocracy don't count that stuff in their indictment against the meritocracy, but that's a big chunk of it. Um, of what we what's included in the meritocracy. And but at the end of the day, we can talk about the politicization of merit and the comp and the arguments from the left and the right about what kind of attitudes and what kind of behavior we're rewarding in the society and what kind of elites that we're trying to subsidize and or penalize. And I'm fine with having those kind of conversations. I personally find them fascinating. But spare me the bullshit that merit isn't a thing, right? I mean, like there's an ideal and then there's the real world attempt to live up to the ideal. Pick an ideal, good, decency, charity, integrity. Just go, just pick one. I don't really care. Pick, you know, go through courage, you know, whatever, you know, Cicero's virtues are, pick one. And we can have an argument about how best to try to live up to that ideal or who best exemplifies those ideals or who falls short or whose definition it gets closer or is further away from the ideal. That Those conversations don't mean the ideal doesn't exist. And this idea that somehow hard work and decency and integrity don't matter because it's all a social construct, you know, designed by the pale penis people to impose systematic white oppression at a time where non-whites have had more success. I mean, it's amazing how much more emphasis there is put on institutional racism at a time when the evidence for actual institutional racism has been in such short supply. And the reason for it is, is that it is a weaponized concept. It is a reified concept designed to help a certain group of elites. Um, you know, Claudine Gay went to Exeter and and I think Stanford or maybe Penn briefly and then Harvard. She's part of a very specific elite. You know, she's making she so she's she lost her job as president, but she's still gonna make eight hundred thousand dollars a year as a college professor. A college professor who was busted for plagiarism and clearly busted. Anyway. Get back to the sort of reify point. I don't want to get too far down that cul-de-sac. Oh, that's not the reify part. Um, the G file last week. And I got a lot of, I, I stand completely by what I wrote. I made the point that 
you can't have it both ways. You can't claim that diversity is this really important value. And there are people, just Google it, you'll find a bunch of people. I mean, I was reading this stuff last week when I was writing, you know, who I think it's, I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, um, the guy at Georgetown. There are people who argue that diversity needs to be considered one of the merits, one of the criteria for merit, that your skin color should be counted essentially as an accomplishment. And I'm actually not like a thousand percent opposed to that. I think directionally, the incentives that come with that kind of logic are bad. But look, I think diversity does add something. And all things being equal, you know, diversifying with a broad and, and generous conception of diversity, is, uh, diversifying your workforce is a good thing. Diversifying your institutions is a good thing. Now, I would include conceptions of diversity that just don't amount to the, your skin color, but having you know, being inclusive towards black people is a good thing. Being inclusive towards Hispanics is a good thing. Asians, Jews, whoever, it's a all, that's all good. Um, and there's some cases where I actually think this idea that it should count as a form of merit has some real substance to it. I've, I've long argued that cops in black neighborhoods, it's beneficial for there to be black cops in black neighborhoods. Because it just, it, it, it keeps the, it takes the racial component out of policing at least a little bit. Um, similarly, it just, it's a no friggin' brainer that in Hispanic or Asian neighborhoods, and when I say Asian neighborhoods, I mean like neighborhoods full of, with lots of immigrants from Vietnam or China or wherever where they speak, where English isn't their first language. In ethnic communities where a lot of people don't speak English, it probably is a good idea to have cops who speak the language. And you can do this with social workers and a zillion other things, right? So like, like there are places where certain understandings of, of diversity do kind of count as merit. So I'm, I'm open to that. So anyway, I got a lot of grief because I was like, I wasn't taking this argument against merit seriously, which I just simply reject. I was giving it, I was, I was, not unduly dismissive, I was duly dismissive of it, because merit is a real thing. And if you don't teach your kids, and you don't tell your society that your own hard work matters, I understand there will always be left-wingers, there will always be, and, and now these days, disgruntled, bitter right-wingers who will say, hard work isn't enough. And that's something that you should sometimes take seriously, because you know, you want people, you want there to be rewards for your hard work. But even if the returns on hard work aren't what they should be, or aren't approaching what the ideal return is, hard work is still good. Putting in a, a, putting in a real effort, giving it your best, taking yourself seriously, and trying to achieve, you know, excellence in what you do is valuable unto itself. T telling people that none of that stuff matters because the man is keeping you down, I think is evil. And you can't have this argument, getting back to this both ways thing, you can't say merit's a myth, merit is a tool of the patriarchy, merit is a tool of white supremacy, and that we need to shatter all that by hiring for diversity. And look, I challenge you, the people who said I was straw manning this, I think you're just flat out wrong. Just Google a phrase like hiring for diversity and see how many sponsored ads 
show up on Google from firms that make enormous amount of money because the DEI industry is very large and very successful, pushing this idea that you need to hire for diversity, that di hiring for diversity is, is not just nice or well-intentioned, it's vital for success and the workforce of tomorrow and yada, yada, yada. And that, but you can't celebrate and demand all that. And like when they hired Claude, when they appointed Claudine, De Claudine Gay president, you can't send out press releases and bat, pat yourselves on the back about what a, what, a, what a victory for diversity all of this is and how wonderful it is. And then get outraged when you suggest that maybe the deciding factor on her getting the position was that she was a diversity hire. You can't take all the credit and all the moral glory for having a diversity hire and then say, how dare you, sir, for calling her a diversity hire. Now, I understand there are people who use diversity hire in a very pejorative sense. And, and sometimes terms, you know, become pejorative um, and you need to just sort of, you know, live with coming up with another term. And so, fine, if it's a bloody shirt, if it's a red flag to say diversity hire because there are racists who say it means someone is utterly unqualified for something, um, I'll just say hired for diversity. You know, it's sort of like, you know, colored people is a bigoted term now, but people of color is, 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 is not only acceptable, but preferred. I mean, language is weird. Okay. So, but it was, it is obvious that being a black woman helped Claudine Gay's chances. Um, in getting the job. And um, that doesn't mean that on paper, she didn't seem like she was qualified, right? I mean, like, like it's, it's a checklist for everybody. They weren't going to hire somebody with no qualifications whatsoever. But um, this idea that Harvard, which celebrated the fact that they hired the first black female president, first black president of Harvard, didn't have in its head, hey, we'll get to release a press release saying we hired the first black president to Harvard, is just, just betrays all common sense. And the thing that bothers me and the thing that I just think people or my critics about this are wrong is you can't have this argument. And, and remember, Connie Gay's writing and, and, and policies are all of a piece of this reified system of oppression stuff. You can't have an argument that says merit is just the social construct of the ruling white elites and then rely on the concept of merit to defend the, you know, this particular, you know, perk or position or racial spoil. You can't have it both ways. Either merit isn't a thing or it is a thing. And if you're going to invoke merit, then you have to play by the rules of what constitutes merit in an academic setting. And if you've been caught with like, I don't know what the number is now, is it 50, 60 different instances of plagiarism, you no longer have access to the term merit. It's not saying she's dumb. It's not saying that she's a bad person or any of that kind of stuff. But it is just flatly untrue that plagiarism doesn't matter in academia. And it is flatly untrue that she only lost her job or was forced out because she's a black woman. I don't think anybody on the board was motivated by racism. I don't think any of her critics 
in, internally at Harvard or among donors were motivated by racism. I think there's no evidence for that. You can't, again, this is the problem you get when you reify everything, when you systematize everything. Um, as Robert Nisbet once put it, when you, um, you know, you be fruitless and reify, the evidence that the people like, like people like Ibram Kendi take is that she was a black woman who lost this position. So therefore, the cause was racist. Well, the guy who lost his, the presidency at Stanford was a white guy, and you know, no one was talking about how that was racist. The first president to step down from the as a result of the congressional hearings was a white woman, and there wasn't a lot of talk about you know race being involved in that. And so you can't, you just can't declare any time a black person loses in a political fight, it's because of racism, because that again, it's just so condescending. And it sends a terrible signal. And that's why I wrote the G-File this week about, about just sometimes you just need to take the loss, right? You just, just, you lost this one, don't. And that's why slippery slopism has been in my head is that we have these mobs, we have these, these hyper tribal sort of uh, factions that approach politics that assume if we lose this fight, we will lose every fight for all time. If we, if we throw this guy under the bus or that gal under the bus, there'll be no stopping our enemies and they will devour us all. And that's what I think is so friggin' funny about Claudine Gay's op-ed in the New York Times. It's very Trumpy. They're coming for me to get you. That's the uptake of it. It was very badly done. But that's, and this gets to this both sides stuff, that's the logic that both sides are bought into these days manifest itself in different ways is that everything is this reified, systematized, apocal twilight struggle that's zero sum. And you have to fight on every piece of ground or you'll lose on this slippery slope all your ground. And just most of America is not plugged into that. Most of America couldn't give a rat's ass about that um, because most of America is still full of basically normal, decent people. But the people were sort of super plugged into this essentially intense conflict between two different factions of elites. They've convinced themselves of this, this sort of apocalyptic struggle. And the last thing you can do is ever defenestrate one of one of your own and the truth is of course you can i mean you shouldn't defenestrate people who did nothing wrong right you shouldn't i shouldn't say you shouldn't ever do that but the the bar for not doing that is much much higher right you know sometimes there have been cases in the military where you just need to send a signal to the troops and to your enemies and you fire some generals, some of whom really don't deserve it. Just so you get new blood and you send a signal and you get everybody on their toes, right? Um, sometimes you have sister soldier moments that are kind of unfair to the specific sister soldier, but you're doing it for some grander purpose. I, I, I get that. But like, if your side's in the wrong, if your, your person is in the wrong, and they're causing grave damage to your cause, sticking with them because of some totally abstract fear about what comes next makes, first of all, it's, it's wrong on the merits, right? 
it's wrong on the facts, but I also think it's wrong strategically for your own cause. Because the more you circle the wagons, the more you bend the rules, right? So like Flooding Day did something wrong. The people who said, and again, very Trump-like, Trump does lots of things wrong, right? And the response from an enormous number of people who should know better and who once did know better is to redefine their definition of right and wrong to fit Donald Trump. That's what all these people were doing to defend Claudine Gay. They were saying, well, it's not really plagiarism, it's duplicative language. And, oh, this happens all the time. And, and they're only doing this because she's black and all these other things. And, they're, and there's a real snobbery to it about because she was sort of the Alger Hiss of the sort of DEI industrial complex. And people have little memory of this stuff anymore. But, you know, one of the reasons why elites circled around Alger Hiss um, and um, heaped nothing but scorn and ridicule on Whitaker Chambers was a class had a lot to do with it. You know, Clinton Gay comes from Exeter. She's, she's, was a crown jewel of the left's definition of the new meritocratic elite. And like the, someone was making this point the other day, the black professor that she helped hound out and ruin the career was sort of a working class guy, which just shows that class sometimes is as important as the race stuff. I can't remember who was making this point, but it's not original to me. See, that's how you make sure you don't get accused of plagiarism is you just give credit to people. But uh, even when you can't remember their name, what was I saying? Oh, so Adra Hisson, Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers was a sort of like loose, sort of slobby, middle brow. I mean, though he was much smarter than Aldra Hiss, but that was his sort of his impression. This unkempt middle-class guy and Aldra Hiss was part of like the, the select and um, it out outraged people um, that Whitaker Chambers had the audacity to tell the truth about <laughs> about Alger Hiss. And again, that's at the end of the day, I know I'm just truly rambling here. I don't know if I've used the punctuation mark in the last half hour. The truth matters. And the truth is like what Claudine Gay did was bad on the facts. And I still think that the the her testimony and the free speech stuff, the claims of free speech while actually not being for free speech and um, all of all of the stuff that originally invited the attention on her was worse than the actual plagiarism um, because it represented something much broader and more sinister. Um, but everyone who says that this was all about racism needs to simply acknowledge the fact that were it not for the fact that she was a plagiarist, the people that you think are racist wouldn't have won. The facts matter. And, you know, and that's, that's why you don't have slippery slopes all the time is because when the facts change, the coalitions and the arguments over the new set of facts that people want to contend with change. And this is one of the reasons why I, just, I dislike so much of this DEI stuff. And it goes back to, you know, in my underrated second book, um, if you get a chance, you should read my chapter on social justice because it's the same thing is you get institutional movements, you get groups, you get activists who create this abstract category and then claim whatever they do in the name of this abstract good, this abstract ideal is good. 
And if you disagree with their tactics or you question their motives or if you question their results, it's because you disagree with the ideal. It's that you don't think the ideal is good. So if you disagree with social justice groups, you're against social justice, even though a lot of social justice groups are self-dealing, corrupt, and weird, right? I mean, it depends on the group. You can believe with the ideals embedded in the Black Lives Matter movement, but you can also concede the fact that a lot of people involved with the original Black Lives Matter Foundation are terrible, corrupt people. And you're not a racist for pointing it out. And you're not against diversity if you point out that Claudine Gay was a plagiarist who gave terrible, terrible answers about how to respond to things like calls for genocide against Jews. And it's fine if you want to argue in a polite conversation with me that, well, you know, from the river to the sea isn't about genocide and all that kind of stuff. And that's not necessarily intended to be genocidal. And that's what she was meaning by the context and all of those sorts of things. Those are colorable, I shouldn't say colorable, those are plausible positions and arguments. They leave out the fact that Elise Stefanik asked explicitly, didn't ask, does, do calls for rivers of the sea violate your principles? She said, do calls for genocide of Jews, for the mass murder of Jews, violate your, your, your free speech policies and your policies of inclusion and blah, 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 blah. And Claudine Gay, for whatever reason, not because she's dumb, but because she's probably way too lawyered up and she had too much contempt for the Republicans grilling her and too much arrogance, um, much like the other professors, um, because being dragged in and having to deal with these unwashed, she didn't question, she didn't dispute the premise. She didn't say, well, you know, what do you mean by genocide? Um, or anything like that. She accepted the premise and she just sort of whiffed it. And don't take my word for it. Take her word for it. She admits that part. She owned up to that part. It took her a while and it took a while for the, the Penn president to do it, but she resigned because she acknowledged that she, she screwed up that answer too. The facts matter. What they actually said, how they respond to things matter. And all these people trying to make it sound like this is just the system or these are just racists taking out any random black female, do a profound disservice to the human agency involved in Claudine Gay's own actions um, and the actions of, of people who don't make the same bad choices that she made. All right, probably a bad choice for me to do this whole thing already. I'm done. I got to go. I got to write a G file. Um, I'll be on the Chris Wallace show tomorrow. Hopefully I will get more caffeine in me for that. Um, but we're recording it today. Thank you all for listening. I'll talk to you next time.